This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 113. Today we speak with Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr. about perspectives on Pentecost. Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we thank everyone who helps to make this program possible. To read more about how you can contribute, please visit reformedforum.org slash donate. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, a weekly conversation of Reformed theology. My name is Camden Busey. We're very pleased to have a large panel today. Everyone, all our regulars are here. I am uh, looking across the table from Jeffrey C. Waddington, who's teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. How are you doing, Jeff? Oh, I'm doing fine, but how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming over. This Mm -hmm. is a pleasure. We also have online Nick Batzig, who is a church planter just outside of Savannah, Georgia, in Richmond Hill. How are you doing, Nick? Good, Camden. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and our third panelist here is Jim Cassidy, who's the pastor of Calvary OPC in Ringo's. He's also a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary, along with Jeff. Thanks for joining us, Jim. It's a pleasure to have you. It's good to be here, Camden. Thanks. And our special guest today, we're very pleased to welcome back, after about a year of a layoff from our program, we have Dr. Richard B. Gaffin, Jr., who is Professor of Biblical and Systematic Theology Emeritus at Westminster Theological Seminary. Thank you so much for coming over and joining us today. My privilege. Glad to be with you all again. This is going to be a wonderful discussion. We're very excited to be speaking today about the role of the Holy Spirit, particularly looking at the great event of Pentecost in which the Spirit was poured out and given to the church, an event that has huge significance and has had many different interpretations and understandings. So we're going to be looking at that event today, understanding it in its redemptive historical relation to the rest of uh, all the events in the Bible and exploring what it means. But first, uh, before we get there, do we have any conferences or any news to mention before we get started? Well, uh, Twin Lakes Fellowship is coming up next month. I think it's maybe too late to sign up. I'm not sure, but that's in Jackson, Mississippi. That's a ministerial fraternity. Ligon Duncan is um, in charge of that. And primarily men from the OPC and PCA and ARP come together. And um, it's a really rich time of fellowship. So that is coming up, um, I think, April 6th through 8th. Mm. And um, Ligonier... National Conference is coming up in June. Um, I think that's the beginning of June. Those are the only ones I know of. And we have the Science and Faith Conference. Uh, it's co-sponsored of the Discovery Institute in Westminster. That's at Westminster this Friday. So as you hear this, um, you will be able to uh, attend. But I think it's sold out. So if you already have a ticket or if you want to get maybe standing room only or you can sit outside of a window and maybe listen. But uh, that's going to be exciting, talking about the relationship of science and faith. And we have many, many uh Speakers, including Michael Behe, I believe, Dr. Oliphant, Dr. Poitras, who will be speaking. So it's going to be a great conference. So even if you're not able to attend, keep your eyes open uh, to WTS.edu, and maybe you can find a recording there. Well, today, as I already had spoken, we are going to be speaking about Perspectives on Pentecost. Dr. Gaffin has written that book uh, several years ago, speaking about a cessationist view a view uh, seeing that the Holy Spirit was given once for all to the church, and that isn't necessarily repeatable uh, in the application of redemption. 
And as we speak, we're going to march through several of the notes and the materials that Dr. Gaffin uses uh, throughout Perspectives on Pentecost and in his, and in his uh, much-attended course, Acts and Paul, at Westminster Theological Seminary. And as we get started, I wanted to uh, begin speaking about Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And uh, this really is an important passage to, uh, to mention and to begin with when we talk about Pentecost. And our first question I'd like to ask is, what is the task that is described in this passage, and who really is supposed to be carrying it out? Yeah, the verse is, of course, well-known and functions often as a key text, say, for mission conferences, uh, where um, the text can be taken, say, in a way that uh, suggests that the local congregation is Jerusalem, and as they have an eye to uh, worldwide mission, they will see then uh, the task before them as moving from where they are uh, and seeing that the gospel goes overseas in, in various locations, other parts of the world. <clears throat> Not everybody reads it that way, but I think that's a somewhat popular way of reading it, and I think it uh, runs into substantial problems with this text. Um as this is a mandate given by the ascend, uh, the Christ uh, just before his ascension, resurrected, soon to be ascended Christ, <clears throat> it uh, it's given directly to the apostles. The way you uh, that's sometimes missed the you in Acts one eight when he says uh, you will be my witnesses. If you look in the text and you trace back the antecedent, the concrete antecedent of that you, you come back eventually back to verse two, and the um, the identification there of the apostles. So this um, task of worldwide gospel witness from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, as it's put there, is a task to uh, given specifically to the apostles. And I think it's important with that comment about the verse that it uh, stipulates an apostolic task, that it also, as it is positioned in the document by Luke, is an indication of overall purpose of what he's concerned to document in, the, in, in, in part two to Theophilus as a whole. So uh, coming to the bottom line here— um, I'll I'll stop and let you pick up on uh, follow-up questions or comments that others might have. Um, What Acts documents and is concerned to show is a completed apostolic history. It's not an open-ended task that isn't somehow finished, uh, but uh, the the narrative line has to be seen, uh, particularly in terms of, of the flow from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth represented in at the end of the narrative in chapter 28, uh, where even though Paul's in prison, uh, it's not as if somehow the history is open-ended, but the history is complete, uh, which means then that 1-8, uh, the geographical designations are not to be understood in some absolute sense, but have ethnic significance. So really what Acts is concerned is the completion of an apostolic task, taking the gospel from Jew 
Jerusalem, Judea, to mm. half Jew, uh, Samaria, to the Gentile ends of the earth. So that, uh, from that perspective, um, there's not as some have anticipated from time to time. Luke uh, intended a part three uh, to Theophilus that would have given us a better ending than what some perceive <laughs> in in right. uh, chapter two, uh, part two. But it is a completed history. Now, or, or or what some have said, uh, N.T. Wright doesn't he speak of the present uh, situ- uh, situation in the church as being Act six? Or I forget how he describes it. Yeah, he has it, that but, drama of redemption, I believe. Yeah. Mm. Acts 5, I think he calls it. Is it 5? Acts 5. Mm. Yeah. I, but I think he's, he gets at that from a somewhat different angle than analyzing Acts. Right. Mm. Now, speaking of the apostolic task uh, and and the focus on the apostolic ministry, uh, Acts uh, Luke, as he writes Acts, he focuses mostly on Peter and Paul. What does that tell us about Luke as he's writing uh, regarding his style and his purpose? Yeah, that's uh, it's an important—you're making the observation, which uh, everyone, I think, is bound to recognize, that <clears throat> so far as uh, the people involved in the unfolding history that Luke is wanting to document, the, the first half of the document, roughly chapter 1 to 12, is, is dominated by Peter— uh, he's sort of phased out at that point. He does show up at chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. But then Paul comes in, having been introduced in chapter 9. He becomes the dominant figure uh, beginning in chapter 13 uh, to the end of the document. So it's really uh, Peter focus, early Paul focus. Now, I think it's very important to connect that Peter-Paul focus with what we're just observing about uh, the apostolic task. So that the interest in Luke and them is not as they were particularly, um, say, charismatic figures. Mm. Uh, no doubt they were exemplary persons in, as, as believers, and uh, there's a great deal that's ad- admirable about them. But that's not—we uh, miss the point if we see uh, that uh, Peter's trying to give us a sketch of these early Christians— uh, two noble, uh, two notable early Christians that we ought to be now trying to emulate, but he is focused on them as he is focused on them as apostles, which is simply to say he's focused on their apostolic task that they serve, and um, as um, you know, sometime been pointed out. Remember how Acts opens. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts, you know, the, the former treatise I, I wrote, uh, mm-hmm. beginning all that, Je- uh, uh, dealing with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And uh, even though it isn't explicit, I think as a number have pointed out fairly that what uh, Peter's, uh, what Paul, Luke is concerned to do in Acts is document now predominant, uh, preeminently what the exalted Christ no longer in a state of humiliation, but now in a state of exaltation, is doing through the apostles who he has set apart as witnesses to the resurrection mm. uh, for this task. Now, how would you see that uh, in Ephesians 2.20? You draw this out in other courses you've taught, seeing the connection, I suppose, between what the apostles are doing and Christ's work. Yeah, Um yeah, Ephesians 2.20 is right there at the end of the last half of uh, Ephesians 2, uh, beginning at verse 11 to the end of the chapter. And uh, what 
Paul, uh, Paul largely develops his argument there um, in terms of the church as a building. So the church is, uh, if you will, the great house-building project uh, that God has going in the period between the resurrection and return of Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the way, it's worth pointing out in that context, he stresses uh, that that house-building of the church involves the reconciliation that there is between Jew and non-Jew, uh, the spread of the gospel from Israel to the nations, which is exactly what, uh, as you're pointing out, Paul has in view in, um, in as Peter uh, Luke has in view in, in Acts. But uh, in terms of that model of the church house, uh, what Paul is saying then is that the apostles, along with prophets, who I would understand to be a New Testament prophets, you could, we could talk further about that, they form the foundation of the one church house so that uh, the foundation of apostles and prophets is, uh, by God the master builder, uh, established once, and it's completed, uh, and the apostles and prophets pass out of the life of the church, and then subsequently is the post-apostolic period of building the superstructure on Mm. that foundation, which is where we find ourselves in the church today. Mm. Dr. Dr. Gaffin, can I just ask this one question about um, cutting through to the whole issue of continuing prophecy, and that's a big issue in the Calvinistic churches today. And as you read the book of Acts, you see both revelatory, um, redemptive revelatory prophecies, and then you see the prophecy of Agabus about famines, and presumably Philip's four daughters prophesied perhaps about personal things and not necessarily redemptive revelation. Um, is there a redemptive revelation and a um, a lesser uh, revelation more on matters that are personal or um, uh, events like the famine that Agabus prophesies about that serve that? How do you understand those two things going on, taking this view of all, all prophecy being foundational from Ephesians 2.20? Yeah, a good question, and I I don't think there's any disputing the distinction you're making uh, before the sort of broader uh, redemptive historical orientation and more personal orientation, but I would say it's not so uh, much—try to put it this way, uh, if it's not too subtle a turn of faith—the point is not so much that prophecy is foundational as it is that prophecy is for the foundational period of the church's life. Now, as a matter of fact, uh, the instances we have, as you said, we don't really know what uh, Philip's daughters were prophesying. Mm -hmm. That that becomes a matter of speculation. But you see, I would say, appended as it is, uh, right at the end of Acts 11, where you have Agabus, you have two prophecies from Agabus in Acts. At the end of chapter 11 and then in chapter 21, associated with Paul on the way to Rome, um, I would say they have not so much personal, but they do have explicit redemptive historical significance. It's a matter of the Gentiles in, in chapter 11, the Gentiles in Antioch uh, contributing for the needs of their now Jewish brothers in Christ in Jerusalem. 
Right. And, and similarly, in 21, it all has to do with uh, the, the Paul's ministry right. in its apostolic uniqueness. But I would say, uh, say I think, um, to, to it, put it, it, it go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, because I, I hold the view you, you hold and expound in perspectives on Pentecost on this, but it seems like those, those non-Christocentric, if I can put it that way, prophecies were serving the spread of and the foundation of Christ's church and the new covenant in the life of the apostles and the church uh, with continuing applications for us today, not that we need those continuing kind of prophecies. Would that be correct? that they were serving the, the establishment of the New Covenant Church. Um, as you've said, the Gentiles giving to the, the Jews because of the famine and Paul being bound um, and taken, handed over to the Romans. Yeah, he, here's where I think my distinction between prophecy being foundational, all prophecy being foundational, and all prophecy being for the foundational period. See, the, by definition, foundational means, we have to bring this issue in, means non-closed canon. So see, when, uh, when you went, quote-unquote, to church in this period, uh, you didn't have a completed New Testament. What you had is a completed Old Testament uh, an oral apostolic uh, and prophetic witness, and then also uh, now what are now included in the New Testament, those writings. So you had canon, put it in quotes, is mm-hmm. kind of that mixture of oral and, um, and written, and uh, so that in any given situation, um, there are ministry needs immediate that are addressed. I'll just take your question about prophecy as as uh, as being um, you know addressed to more personal leads. We'll pick up any letter of Paul. He is there writing to specific needs, immediate needs uh, that are not exactly identical uh, in in historical circumstance with uh, subsequent needs in various different places in life of the church. There's all kinds of continuity, so that there can be application. But he is uh, he is uh, addressing um, personal uh, personal needs uh, in the life of the church, which needs God's word addressed to them. So I don't think it means that it doesn't mean that that personal prophecy, more uh, apparently more personal prophecy, is distinct from the clearly uh, uh, or more broadly redemptive historical, is any less revelatory. Right. Um, right. They, they. I think. In other words, they they together bring God's word to the church, for the church at that time. Mm. That's helpful to understand that mm. foundational nature there as we uh, continue this discussion. Um, moving back on to uh, the question of Luke Acts, you do teach a course. It's called Acts and Paul, but you have a significant section on the Gospel of Luke, uh, and of course uh, they both were written by Luke, and so. What is the significance of reading the two as a as one work, or at least a connected work, and, and indeed an overlapping work? Yeah, a cu- couple of consider. You ask, you give me these questions, you start asking for a long lecture. I'll, is that- <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief, and don't hesitate to interrupt sure, me. If sure. I realize we want to be uh, conversational here. Um, so to begin with, um, 
I think even the most critical scholarship is going to recognize, even if they deny Lucan authorship, that this is a double work, uh, that it's the same author uh, addressed to um, this individual Theophilus, whether he's an actual uh, person, which, who I, which I think likely, or some kind of uh, stereotypical uh, reader. And I, of course, see no good reason for questioning Lucan authorship. But it's... Uh, so by by its by the the markers the literary markers this is really not so much two works but a part one and a part two to Theophilus that make up a double work. Uh, I think what it further reinforces that is the overlap, as you'll look at it, between the close of the gospel, uh, beginning at verse forty four in chapter twenty four, mm-hmm. and the beginning of Luke one. Uh, 3 through 11, dealing with the same material that shows, uh, that reinforces that. And um, so it means that, well, somebody has put it slightly overstated, uh, that uh, Pentecost, what happens on the day of, uh, in Acts 2, is the high point, uh, the climactic point of the entire two-volume work. Hmm. And um, I think that has, as I said, it's overstated, um, but I think it makes uh, it, it, it contains an important point, and that is this. And, and I would qualify it to make it an acceptable point that cross, but particularly resurrection, ascension, the reception of Jesus in His ascension as a reward for His work and the out of the Spirit and the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, as they they constitute a uh, temporally distinct but a kind of complex of events uh, mm. that is uh, the, that 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 event complex is the heart of the two documents, and that's why Luke. Um, it's important to look back into um, Luke's gospel. Mm. And I don't know if you want to talk about that further. Well, I, I do want to make the point uh, for those who who might have missed that for some of our younger or, or uh, those who haven't studied under Doctor Gaffin or read his books. There's a there's a major significance in saying that that all these things are a complex of events and that they're connected because oftentimes Pentecost or Christ's work is truncated before Pentecost and therefore you start to allow for Pentecost to be repeatable and other things. So the case we're going to lay for cessationism and uh, for the closing of the canon, etc., in in the next few moments is bound up with that understanding that Pentecost is a once for all event. Uh, tied to Christ's work, and and it can't be repeated or, or continued any more than Christ could come back again, die again, and be resurrected again. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's very well encapsulated, summed up. Uh, if if I can um, piggyback off of what uh, Camden was asking here, then Doctor Gaffin, um, and and maybe this will because if I recall correctly from from your lectures and it's been been a while but uh if i recall correctly there is a very important literary connection is there not between the baptism of jesus in the gospel and then the outpouring of the spirit given in the book of acts yeah very definitely see acts 1 5 see just before the the well-known statement of verse 8 uh jesus there uh tells the uh, disciples um, that they're to remain in Jerusalem and await the Holy Spirit will come not many days now. And then he cites John's, he references John's baptism, 
that John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you see what that does, Acts 1-5, what Jesus does is point us uh, in two directions at the same time, forward to Pentecost, mm-hmm. but back to the ministry of John, uh, as you were you know, bringing it up in, in the way you posed the question, and shows then um, uh, how the fulfillment on the day of Pentecost is the um, the what takes place on the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of John's prophecy when he said, "I will baptize you with whole, with uh, I baptize you with water." He that is the Messiah coming after him will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. And then in the narrative in Luke three, what happens immediately after that, uh, as if you will, in the redemptive historical flow. John the Baptist transitions now to Jesus, uh, who is the Messiah. Um, he is baptized with John's water baptism uh, as a way of marking him out as the one who's going to be our sin bearer, uh, as the one who is going to, going to uh, become involved in struggle against kingdom state, Satan's kingdom that will bring him eventually to the cross. Uh, as he's marked out by John's water baptism in that way. At the same time, he receives the Holy Spirit for that messianic task. So there's kind of an analogy or parallel between the Jordan and Pentecost. What the Jordan was for Christ, Pentecost is for Christ's people, mm. uh, the church. Uh, and um, What about the connection there when John says, you know, I baptize with water, but one is coming who will baptize in, in the Holy Spirit and in fire? Uh, what could we say for the baptism of the Spirit and fire as it relates to Pentecost? Yeah, um, I think it's important as you look at that expression uh, with the Holy Spirit and fire as the medium of the baptism, of the mess- Messianic baptism, uh, that you see that not as is often done as uh, signifying two baptisms, one positive and, and one negative, but really one baptism with, uh, with, um, with two outcomes. Now, uh, I think it would be fair to say spirit points to um, the positive outcome that comes on the day of Pentecost, but there's also fire um, that is present on the day of Pentecost. You could, we could talk about how that's to be understood and I think it's best seen not so much against, not so much as an empowering, pointing to empowerment or even cleansing, although those aspects may be there. But it uh, it's pointing to the fire of judgment that's associated with the messianic baptism that uh, is now has been exhausted or mitigated. Uh, in the case of the church, mm-hmm. uh, the tongues of fire just hover above them. They they don't in any way uh, have any carry any kind of threat. So, uh, by the way, the back. See, I think what what's what probably needs to be said more clearly here is that what is I think too often not appreciated in the discussions that go on about Pentecost. And what becomes very clear from the perspective of John's prophecy is that the messianic spirit and fire baptism is a matter of judgment. Mm, mm-hmm. It has to do with a judgment ordeal. 
Um, so, and that you can see that the fire in the context is 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 destructive. Mm. It consumes the chaff, and and so that in in the overall perspective, Jesus bears uh, the fire that um, is due our sins. He's he's baptized with that baptism, as he has been baptized with the Spirit as the Jordan. He's baptized with judgment in order that the church might be bla- mm. baptized with blessing on the day of Pentecost. Related to that. Um the question of tongues often comes up when we're talking about Pentecost. Uh, what would you say about the connection between judgment and tongues? I know you draw some of this out in perspectives, and uh, you connect it back to Isaiah, and I believe to a couple other places. How is the sign of tongues uh, not necessarily a sign of believer to believers, but a sign of judgment upon those who don't understand? Yeah, I... Th- I think that Paul is getting at that around 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 21. And you can uh, see how, um, even on the day of Pentecost, how divisive, in a way, or excuse me, better, how the tongues phenomenon elicits a response in the crowd that is a divided response. Um, Some recognize... uh, uh, they're hearing in their own language uh, the declaration of uh, the Magnalia Dei, the great, uh, the the great acts of God, the great redemptive saving acts of God. Other people hear drunken babble, uh, which goes to show that that tongues have that uh, discriminating or dividing effect. And I think, um, yeah, this is we we probably have to take uh, a bit of time to get into it better than more than we have time for here. But I think that, uh, particularly as you see Paul's use of Isaiah 28 in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, his point is that in this, see the period, the apostolic period, which is a period roughly um, between um, the earthly ministry of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, that's when the apostles are appointed around that time, uh, or given their uh, carry their mission into uh, effect, and uh, the fall of Jerusalem. That basically that one generation is one in which the old order is being phased out and the new is being phased in. Particularly as the kingdom is being taken to Israel as taken away from Israel as a geopolitical entity, mm-hmm. and given to a new nation, as Jesus says, that will. Uh, uh, manifest uh, the fruits of repentance so that um, in this period uh, tongues have the temporary function in the temporary function they have are a matter of judgment against um, particularly a judgment against Jewish unbelief as well as serving other functions uh, being equivalent to prophecy for edifying the church when they are interpreted that's helpful. That's helpful to understand. Know that Jesus himself has commented on many, many of these issues here. Um, going back, just uh, as we as we progress, I want to revisit the question of the connection between Jesus' work and the work of the Spirit. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about First Corinthians 15. I, I think it's 44 or 45 thereabouts when Christ is called life giving Spirit. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. 
uh, Soma Sukikan, as, as we're taught in uh, Salvation One. And the last man, Adam, became life-giving spirit. He, he had a, natu- or a spiritual body, a Soma Pneumaticon. So what does it mean for Christ to become life-giving spirit? And how is that related to the, the complex of events that, that culminates there at Pentecost? Yeah, particularly as you're raising that um, that question, Camden, in the context of the discussion we've been having about um, Acts, um, listeners may need to think about this a bit. But uh, I would I, I just challenge with this observation, which um, over the years has become more and more important, or or, or important and and helpful to me. That when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.45 that the last Adam became life-giving spirit, you see, he's talking, he's not making some affirmation of, of, of Jesus' eternal ontological um, identity as the second person of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be in the background here, but that's not Paul's purview. This is something that happened to Christ as last Adam. And it particularly happened to him as resurrected, as would be clear from the context. And Paul is saying that in his resurrection, Christ is constituted life-giving spirit. And and what I was going to, uh, what I was coming to point, uh, the point I wanted to come to is that this, I think, is helpfully seen as a one-sentence commentary on Pentecost. See Acts two thirty-two and thirty-three. Peter, uh, sort of summing up the threads of his uh, argument there, his his proclamation, he says, uh, God raised him from the dead, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received uh, in that exaltation from the Father uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So that, uh, see, the way in which resurrection, ascension, reception by the exalted Christ of the Spirit in his ascension and its outpouring on the church, all that is, as it were, telescoped uh, and and captured in the identification of the resurrected Christ as life-giving Spirit. I should just, having said all that, let me just just add this. It's very important then, I think, to see, uh, I think there's little question about this, even though, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not clear very often in English translation. The reference there is to the person of the Holy Spirit, and that spirit in 1 Corinthians 15.45 ought to be capitalized. Mm -hmm. This is not to break down the personal distinction between Christ and Spirit, but that there is this functional oneness between the two of them in their their life-giving work, uh, dating from the finished work of Christ, his his resurrection. Indeed, we need to do that. I mean, whenever... God, the Godhead works for his people. All three, all three persons are involved in there. It would, would not be correct to say that the spirit works, you know, is on his own entirely without the involvement uh, of the other members of the Trinity. Indeed, it's interesting. We'll to the, uh, it's important that this kind of thing be stressed because there is a, an element within the broader evangelical community that wants to decouple <laughs> Uh-huh. the person and work of Christ from the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Right. Uh, and you, Camden, might be sensitive to this in your reading of Karl Runner. <laughs> some of some of this is has spilled over from, say, Vatican II Roman Catholic discussions over into Protestantism 
historically in the more liberal side, but has it made its way into yeah. the broader evangelical community as well. Yeah. We could have a lot to say about yeah. Ronner there and his Trinitarian theology. But I mean, it's we'll interesting that, that you, you here have, <laughs> you have a very clear biblical basis to counteract that right. splitting off of the work of Christ from the work of the spirit. So that, uh, which is a real danger, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in some sectors of the evangelical community. Now, when we speak about Christ as becoming life-giving spirit, having died and been raised, he had accomplished the work that was laid out to him, for him by the Father, uh, you know, agreed upon in the Pactum Salutis. Um, so how does that set the stage for Pentecost? Is, this, uh, is it best now to understand it as Christ having earned and received the spirit and then bestowing it upon his people? Or how, how ought we to talk about that? Yeah. Uh, could I, uh, addressing that, could I, could I just back up and Please. make a, a comment on uh, the previous interchange about not decoupling uh, mm-hmm. the uh, Christ and the Spirit, which is a, a, a tendency that can happen in different ways uh, in positions that are quite, mm-hmm. in other respects, uh, really at antagonistic to each other uh, theologically. But um, I think it's, a, it, as it could be put, Pentecost is a, as much a Christological event as it is a pneumatological event. To or use, a patrological. Right. Uh, uh, to use jargon, it's as much about the Spirit. Um, I mean, it's, it's as much about Christ as the Spirit. And in fact, if you look at it in terms of John's prophecy, uh, he, the Messiah, will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the active subject on the day of Pentecost really is not the Spirit, but Christ. Now you don't want to you know, fall. You know you don't want you you don't want to short a circuit or short shrift the the importance of the Spirit, but. Uh, you cannot. You can. We never get away from the centrality of Christ. Is, mm, is what mm-hmm. it amounts to, even um, even as we consider the Spirit. Then how do we how do we understand that being the case? How do we understand Christ receiving the Spirit and then and then pouring it out to His people, okay, to His I, church, His bride? Here, after all the talk, I'll give you a, a at least for me a relatively brief answer. <laughs> We're distilling about 20 hours worth of lectures yeah. into an hour. So please understand that. Listener. Um, I think I maybe even commented a little bit back earlier. Uh, we got to see the link between what happened at the Jordan and what happens at Pentecost. There's a certain analogy, um, but the question could be raised, particularly uh, if we stress as acts two uh, 33 does that in his ascension, Jesus received the Spirit and then pours out the Spirit as gift on the church, the question, I think, uh, might easily come to man. Well, what happened? Didn't he receive the Spirit at the Jordan? Yeah. Uh, right. And so how? Are, what's going on here? How are we to relate those? I th- you know, that's the question I think you're, uh, that you're raising. And, and I guess I would—this uh, is the—as I said, I was going to give a brief, simple answer. Now I'll come to it. As at the Jordan, Jesus receives the Spirit for the messianic task in front of him, as the as the equipment that is necessary. And I would stress that necessity because of his genuine humanity. He needed the Holy Spirit in order to to make it successfully in a fidelity to his messianic calling uh, to the cross and laying down his life there. So he receives the Spirit at, at, the, at the Jordan for the Messianic task in front of him to be done. 
He receives the Spirit in his exaltation for the messianic task as reward for the messianic task now done, a reward then that he doesn't keep to himself but shares with the church, which Mm. is what Pentecost is all about. Mm. Dr. Gaffin, following up on that, um, I want to ask you two related questions, and I'll, I'll try not to confuse you in asking them. If, <laughs> if, you, need me to, if you need me to repeat them, I will. Um, first, is it right to see the apostolic ministry as an extension of the incarnation in the Historia Salutis, not in the Roman Catholic sense of extension of the incarnation, but are the apostles, because it's the acts of Christ in them by the Spirit post-Pentecost, is that is it right for us to see that as an uh, extension of the incarnation? And then secondly, are there miracles, beginning in Acts 3 with the healing of the lame man at the temple, are there miracles in some way uh, correlated to the miracles of Christ? Now, I've not read anything on that. I was just wondering, because Jesus heals the, the lame man, lame his whole life in John 5, um, outside the temple. The apostles' first miracle, they're he- healing this lame man outside the temple. And I'm just wondering if there's any kind of correlation that you've um, discovered in your your study of Acts. Yeah, a very interesting question. I would say, uh, you know, just the way you phrased the question, which I won't repeat, I think you were guarding against misconceptions of, say, a Roman uh, Catholic understanding of the uh, continuation of the apostolate. Uh, I would say... um, that it is fair to view the apostles uh, in the terms, as extensions, as you put it, of Jesus' uh, ministry. Uh, I think particularly from a couple of angles, from Ephesians 2.20, you see, we're told that the apostles are, along with prophets, are the foundation, but we're also told with Christ as the chief cornerstone. So there you see Christ and apostles together function as the foundation of the church. Now that raises the question, how do the, how do the apostles serve as foundation? And they do that by their witness to Christ. Uh, so Christ still has his priority and his uniqueness, but they are together uh involved in um in a task of 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 proclamation if you will and in in the um in the same way i i think for instance of the way in which isaiah 49 uh 6 uh, about um uh, you know i've appointed you for a lot the messianic servant has been appointed for as light for the nations well that's applied uh, that passage is applied in effect to Christ in Second Corinthians six, in Acts thirteen, Paul applies it to himself in his apostolic ministry. Mm. So I, I think from that angle, that would uh, provide a bond. That's interesting. What about the miracles? Then is there any correlation between the precise miracles that happen and the miracles of Christ? Yeah, that that's one I'd have to think about more. I haven't really thought of it just that way, uh, except. Uh, more generally, that I think there is an Acts, there is in the book of Acts, which a lot of people fail to recognize, uh, a pronounced emphasis. Now, while it's true, occasionally others are doing miracles, it's basically miracles are through the hands of the apostles or through the apostles again and again. And I think you uh, 
your uh, you know your question i think is very suggestive my immediate reaction is 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 on a positive or affirming one that there's there are there are definite yeah. uh, uh, analogies or con- connections between the types of mess of of uh, casting out demons and the healing of the lame as you pointed to that would that would uh if you will uh point up that christological link between apostle and uh, the person of Christ himself. I, I can think of, uh, if I may jump in here, there are at least two miracles that I think may be tied together, and that is our Lord's raising of Jairus' daughter. Uh, and what does he say in the Aramaic, Talitha Kumi? And then when Peter raises uh, Tabitha, or Dorcas, he says Tabitha Kumi. Hmm. So there may there may be a literary connection there between those uh, two miracles. Mm, it's interesting. Yeah, we need to, it it would be worthwhile to do some some uh, intratextual or intertextual analysis there mm. of the two. Mm. Now, uh in the course, uh you you bring out several characteristics about Pentecost and I'd like to go through those cuz I think they're helpful for getting a good solid understanding of of the event of the pouring out of the spirit. And the first is that Pentecost is redemptive historical. And uh, those of us who've come to Westminster and those of us who've read read our favorite authors know that that word is just loaded with meaning, especially uh, from you. Uh, but what do you mean when you say Pentecost is redemptive historical? Yeah, I th- I think perhaps maybe the most helpful way to put it, I mean to stress the once-for-all significance of Pentecost that along, uh, we've already this has already come out somewhat in, in the discussion we've been having. Right. Uh, along with the cross and resurrection and ascension, uh, Pentecost has an epical e p c o e p o c h a l significance, uh, a one time significance. It's no more capable of, of being repeated in the sense of becoming some kind of paradigm event. Mm then is the death, resurrection, uh, and ascension of Christ. So it's it's basically to highlight, if you make a distinction between uh, redemption and its once-for-all mm-hmm. accomplishment mm-hmm. and in its ongoing application, a lot of people will know Professor John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, in terms of that distinction or— Ritter-Boss, the— Historia salutis, yes. ordo salutis. Mm-hmm. Which is, that's just a Latinizing and trying to, <laughs> trying to fa- sound more... Impo- fancification. A fa- <laughs> I like that. A fancification of that, yeah. of that, ap- uh, that accomplishment, application. I'm, I'm wanting to stress that Pentecost belongs to applica- accomplishment yes, yes. rather than application. application. And in fact, you know, I think it's... You run the risk of being misunderstanding and making a statement. Um, it wasn't, it was absolutely sufficient, excuse me, it was absolutely necessary to for Jesus to die on the cross for the sins of his people. There's no salvation without it. And the it is finished of the cross uh, is, 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 is a glorious, wonderful doc, a gospel doc, declaration uh, that that marks the end of all sacrifice. A sin has propitiated, been propitiated, yeah. as the writer of Hebrews does. Has, it doesn't have to be repeated. But I would suggest that we need to think more often than we do is that the in is, it is finished, as as glorious as it is, as it is, it is only relatively 
the case that, in fact, uh, the once-for-all work of Christ is not complete until he receives and gives to the church uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit at work among God's people on the basis of his finished work. Yes, if, if the Spirit had not been given, Christ's death and resurrection would remain apart from us or outside of us because we need the Spirit to bring it to us and to apply it. Yeah, and there would, uh, uh, there's no new life apart from the cross. Anybody that wants to argue, and I I don't want to come across in any way here as somehow diminishing or trying to make an end run around the cross, uh, that is the heart of our gospel. But there is, um, the, the cross of itself does not bring new life. Mm. The cross of itself does not bring a resurrection life, and that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then uh, your faith is vain, and you're still in your sins, and of all people, we're most uh, miserable. So um, basically, to see if you keep the connection between resurrection and Pentecost— that resurrection life is Pentecostal spirit life, uh, then um, you, you, you can see that uh, you know a cross without a resurrection is no salvation. A right. cross without Pentecost is no salvation. Now, that being said, uh, and, and we agree with you to that point, but the first uh, comment we will receive is, what about the seeming repetitions of Pentecost even within the the book of Acts, because there are several other events in which the Spirit is poured out uh, in separate occasions. So what can we say for those events, and how does that comport or comply with what you said about Pentecost being once for all? Okay, you're pressing me again to reach for a relatively quick answer to a, <laughs> to a question that could be, uh, a pro, you know, to be addressed adequately does does take a lot of time addressing number of passages. In the light of what we've been saying here, I'd stress this. First of all, remember that Acts documents a complete history. It documents a complete apostolic history. And, um, well, in the discussions, particularly as they have um, been focused on in the last, say, half century with the the emergence uh, in in, in a more large scale, the revival of old... uh, older Pentecostalism and the emergence of non-Pentecostal charismatic uh, um, developments. Um, The passages focused on are, in addition to Acts 2, uh, 8, uh, uh, Samaria, the Gospel of Samaria, 10 and 11, the household of Cornelius, and the incident with the disciples of John the Baptist in chapter 19. There'll be other materials that could come into uh, the the picture as well, but those I think are the the prominent ones, the most important ones. And I think that as you read those passages and see uh, the parallel that is, you know, the language that's picked up on, they receive the Spirit just as we. Um, uh, the Holy Spirit was given to us, just as, is now given to them, just as given to us. And and the point that you can't miss, it seems to me, that is that it's not just any uh, they or them, regardless of time and place in church history, any Christian they and them, 
But uh, as you read these passages, the markers are there. It's a matter of uh, what's taking place in the context of the apostles, and it's a matter particularly of Jewish we, Jewish us, and half-Jewish, that is Samaritan, them or they, and non-Jewish, Gentile, them and they. So that what all what you have is not so much repeats of Pentecost. Uh, you can use that language, but it's part how you conceptualize it. Right. That's the issue. It's better to think in terms of extensions of the scope mm. of the of the dominion of the Spirit, which is another way of saying the kingdom of God, uh, to move from Jerusalem, Samaria, Jews from Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So that really all these incidents uh, together con- as a complex represent the uh, apostolic fulfillment, the fulfillment in the context of the ministry of the apostles of uh, John's prophecy, I've baptized you with the Holy Spirit uh, and and fire. And um, the... Um, going to say something else there but it, it um <laughs> trying to say too many things at one time i guess yeah or i've also heard i i, I don't know if the language came from you but oh. uh, it might have been reverberations or aftershocks as a uh, an earthquake or some other helpful analogies for understanding how those those spirit events could happen and still be bound up with one single redemptive historical account yeah that's very helpful that that reverberation uh, and what I, what I had slipped my mind is the example Abram Kuyper uses in his book on the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, he pictures it as uh, at Pentecost, a pebble, or let's better say a giant rock, yeah. <laughs> is dropped into uh, the lake. Uh-huh. And then what happens are, is a ripple effect mm-hmm. that goes out, and that's what you're seeing in uh, 8, 10, 11, 19. Right. And so therefore, since Pentecost is redemptive historical, it's tied up with Historia Salutis at not to be a paradigm, uh, something that is uh, repeated. Now, of course, the Spirit comes and, and, and regenerates and, and unites individuals to Christ in history, but we don't look to a repeat of Pentecost and the re- return of tongues and, and uh, all these other type events that happened in Acts. Uh, we don't look for those today. But secondly, you, you mentioned that Pentecost is also ecclesiological, and you, you speak about the imperative and indicative of the church. And what do you mean when you use those two there in this in this case? And what is the imperative and what is, what is the indicative of the church related to Pentecost? Yeah. Uh, Jesus says, for instance, the Spirit in John seven thirty nine about the Spirit uh, uh, that he will later uh, speak more about promise uh, in chapters 14 through 16 that will come as he ascends to the Father, uh, he will not leave the church alone. As orphans, he'll send the Spirit. And he, um, and as he puts it in 739, the Spirit was not yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there is the principle that the, uh, the church, with the glorification of Christ, uh, the Spirit comes to the church up. Uh, Clumy, how, how did you put your question again? Um, well, I'm asking what the what the imperative is and oh, what yeah. the indicative is, and <clears throat> so what does so, that mean? Yeah. So what Pentecost you see is not an imperative mm. 
or along the lines that we have been considering, it doesn't set up a model that Christians are to seek after. Looking to, for a second baptism right, or a baptism of, of the Spirit or, or something like or, that. Or to seek to have, uh, as if you co- become a Christian without, you can become a Christian without sharing in the Pentecostal Spirit, right. and then you must seek that. That's what I mean to say that it's not uh, uh, an imperative. It's actually, um, yeah, um, you know, the way Paul, I think a very helpful verse we need to bring into the discussion here that addresses uh, gets to the heart of the issue you're raising, where Paul says, 1 Corinthians twelve 13, we're all baptized with one spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, all made to drink of one spirit. You see, to be a believer is to share in the Pentecostal spirit. Uh, you, you can't be a believer in Christ without sharing in the spirit that he poured out on the day of Pentecost. That's the indicative. The imperative, then, is living in the spirit, particularly... Uh, uh, the mission of the church uh, in in extending and uh, building up the people of God—that's the imperative that rests on the Pentecostal indicative. You can see that in the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. If you understand that uh, when Jesus gives the worldwide uh, gospel mandate to the church, he sanctions that not only verse eighteen of Matthew twenty-eight that he is now now has resurrected all authority has been given to him. But also, the other end, the other side, I'm with you always to the ends of the earth. And that is, in effect, spoken prior to Pentecost, strictly speaking, is really a promise of Pentecost. Jesus will be with the church in its task in the power of the Spirit. Mm, That's helpful. Uh, Thirdly, you mentioned, and we've already touched on a lot of this uh, material already, that Pentecost has a Trinitarian nature or it is one of its characteristics is that it is trinitarian uh, and we've already mentioned that that Christ's presence uh christ is present through the spirit uh matthew 28 uh but also what about this focus on the resurrection in acts 2 looking at verses 24 through 36 um christ uh, seems to his the elliptical nature of his work in a sense is present there uh, and there is a Christological focus on, Pente- on Pentecost. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that's that's come up already in our discussion. And just to accent again, this is where I think that statement of 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five is so helpful, that um, Pentecost means, because of the bond that there is between Christ and the Spirit, you could, you, I think it's even fair to put it, it's it's fair enough to put it this way. When Christ, as resurrected and ascended, pours out the Spirit on the church on the day of Pentecost, he, in a way, pours out his own presence on the church. Now, that might seem, looking at Acts 2, uh, a questionable statement, but you see, I think you need to see that passage against the background of John uh, 14, when right. Jesus says, speaking of his ascension, I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you uh, orphans. I will come to you. And clearly, as you look at that passage, when uh, that I will come to you has to do with uh, the sending of the, of the Spirit that he's going to ask the Father uh, to do. So that uh, 
Jesus is saying that for the Spirit to come is for me to come and to be present with you. Mm-hmm. So there's that um, that connection. Now, if Pentecost is Trinitarian, it's easy to understand how the Spirit's involved, and we've hopefully made plain how Christ is involved. But how is the Father involved in Pentecost? How could we say that Pentecost is patrological? Well, I think... Um, Probably the clearest indicator there is the way in which um, the uh, Jesus speaks of in in Acts two, excuse me, Peter speaks of having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, so that the 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 Spirit um, Christ ha- has of course um, secured, and we can even say earned as his reward. Uh, the, the the spirit in his in his ascension, but at the same time it is given to him by the Father. So the Father is seen, if you will, to to uh, be in back of everything that takes place in the deepest way. And that uh, correlatively in Luke uh, uh, twenty four, right toward the end, the um, the. the clearly referring to the spirit come at Pentecost, it's described there as the promise of the Father. So that uh, the Father, uh, even though the Father can appear to recede in terms of the focus on Christ and and, and the obvious focus on the Spirit, uh, it's really, if you will, by his design um, that this is all unfolding so that the Spirit is properly mm. seen uh, as as the fathers and uh, as we would have time to work at it it's uh-huh. it's really the whole of covenant history comes to its culmination uh in in the spirit going from one nation to all nations that would that would seem to hinge on on certain understanding of the old testament um so at, at that point would you be reading uh elohim or or uh, yahweh in a patrological sense in in some of those passages or or uh or you seeing a full trinitarian godhead when we when we're speaking about the old covenant promises being given yeah i th- i think that yeah the the um i guess i the way i would address that is along the lines of of i found always very helpful the way in which warfield discusses the spirit in the old testament um there is the, the, the there's no question that the trinity is there uh but it's uh less clearly delineated so that god is in view in his unity right. so so i would say it's it, it involves father son and spirit but you can um you know in passages like isaiah you begin to see where the the servant of the lord um who is distinguished then mm-hmm. uh, from the Father? Also, the Malach Adonai you find oftentimes, yeah. you know, Malachi three and right. Judges two elsewhere. I, I guess my question was: if you're making, if we were going to say that Pentecost is patrological, because in a sense it's a fulfillment of old covenant promises given by the Father, I would ask: well, where do those promises come from uh, in the Old Testament? Obviously, Jesus says these things that were promised to me from the Father, but. But um, that's that's where that question came mm. up. Um, the reference would seem to be to, I would assume, to Elohim or Yahweh, the same person. And I've always read those and understood those in 
as the Godhead, not specifically the Father. But I know there's a debate on some of those issues. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you can have it both ways. Sure. Because, well, we've got a perichoretic relation yeah, between right, the two, right, so right. that's a little beside the point. I don't mean to derail our discussion, but our final, <laughs> our final one here I want to touch on is that Pentecost is forensic. Could you uh, just describe or define forensic for us in this context? It might be a word not many people are familiar with, uh, or at least as it relates to Pentecost. And then what does that mean to say that Pentecost itself is forensic? Yeah, I'm using the word forensic in the way in which it is um, um, off, it, which it, it it's applied in in discussion about the blessings of the application of redemption, so that the central, see, all of the blessings that we have in the application of redemption can be uh, distinguished as either declarative and forensic, or reno, renovative and uh, having to do with renewal. Mm. Uh, so that when I would speak of, uh, when I would use the word forensic, I would have in view primarily justification, our justification, and as well uh, a basic dimension of our adoption. Mm-hmm. So when uh, when I speak of Pentecost as um, forensic, th- I, I have in mind uh, that uh, what Pentecost documents, if you will, in the giving of the Spirit, is that the church is now no longer under condemnation, that the church uh, and those who belong to the church um, through faith um, are, uh, the church is made up of, of those who have been declared righteous. Mm-hmm. And, and and to support that, I would uh draw attention to a passage like Romans 4.25, where Paul says that Christ was raised for our justification. Well, see, that brings the whole resurrection, uh, Christ being constituted as the life-giving spirit uh, into the picture. Uh, so And so that Paul can also say, 1 Timothy 3.16, that, that Christ in his ascension or his exaltation was justified in the Spirit. Now that verse particularly, I think, connects justification and, and the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's that link then that is in the background uh, in what takes place or is, is, is uh, integral to what takes place on the day of Pentecost, that the, uh, uh, these are, in the language of Malachi, Pentecost reveals that these are the purified sons of Levi, uh, of the new covenant. These are those who have had their uh, their sins forgiven, and that's why the fire. Then we talked about this earlier mm-hmm. at at Pentecost is there, uh, if you will, domesticated. It's not destructive <laughs> because it's destructive aspect <clears throat> that is a just condemnation and destruction for our sins has been exhausted. Of by for us by Christ, mm-hmm. and similarly in our adoption, um, our uh, Paul says uh, the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption, and uh, to the extent that adoption is uh, is a declarative category, we're not God's sons by uh, nature or our effort, but because God declares us to be so for the sake of Christ, and the Spirit attests that. Yes. So. 
it's along those lines that the forensic is, I think, related, uh, not just the renovative, which is obvious perhaps, but the forensic as well to the Holy Spirit. That's very helpful. Well, I'm hoping that this uh, has laid a pretty solid foundation. This is very rich material. If you'd like to read more, obviously, you can pick up the book Perspectives on Pentecost. And I would also highly recommend, if you want to see more of the Ordo Salutis side, um, but as it relates to Historia, please read Resurrection and Redemption. And then uh, what? What uh, I'd like to get the little story on this. What is your favorite writing or shorter writing from Voss that has really impacted your thought and, and perhaps provided the foundation for Resurrection and Redemption? Oh, um, in a way, um, I mean, you don't... It, how can you not pick up Voss and, and benefit? But I would say, you know, probably has to do a lot with what where I was at a particular point, but it would be in a way easy to answer that. It's his essay uh, that originally appeared in the 1912 uh, centennial volume of uh, Princeton Seminary, uh, short title, The Eschatological Aspect of mm-hmm. the Spirit in Paul. And that's in the Selected Shorter Writings volume that you've edited. Yeah, that, that's, that's just, um, everybody ought to study that, and if they do, it will only be to their very great profit on yeah. all these issues. And I've heard the, heard the, your comments on that essay before, which is why I asked, but I'd love to share that with you, and it, it means more to, for you to hear it from Dr. Gaffin than from me, but uh, because of... Uh, because of his, his, his work and, and his other books that he's written. But that essay is phenomenal, and it, and it really will help shape your thinking on, on the role of the Spirit and how he relates uh, Christ's person and work to us in, in, in redemption. And, of course, you can read those things in Resurrection and Redemption as well. Um, highly recommended from all of us. Um, is there anything else we'd like to mention or any other books or uh, essays we'd like to recommend before we sign off here? Can I get uh, something? Yeah, please. Uh, um, uh, particularly since we've been focused on uh, charismatic issues, um, the volume uh, edited by Wayne Grudem, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today, um, that's written, I- I'm a contributor to that on behalf of the so-called cessationist position. Um, and um, that, um, in, in that I've had an opportunity to... Uh, update somewhat the discussion that I Mm. treatment I had in perspectives and also would be an interesting, I think might be interesting read to many because there, uh, there are various, uh, let's see, it's a kind of an agnostic position, a non uh, Pentecostal charismatic position and a, uh, a Pentecostal position. Uh, Those four positions are presented and we interact with each other and, um, I think it it uh, makes an instructive read. Sure, sure. Nick, did you have any suggestions? I, I wanted to ask Dr. Gaffin, I'm preaching through the book of Acts and have found some helpful commentaries and books. Um, do you have any recommendations that you recommend your students read, not just specifically about Pentecost, but on the book of Acts that you found to be really beneficial? Yeah, I, I, would, um, I wouldn't hesitate to mention, first of all, um, Dennis Johnson, his uh, message of the book of Acts, um, um, that's that's very helpful. And I think uh, on very sound biblical theological lines, that would, uh, yeah, I don't know that I would have anything else that I would single out. You know, there uh, F.F. Bruce's commentary is often very helpful. 
um, particularly interesting, his commentary on the English uh, text is, I think, mm. more, better than his commentary <laughs> on the Greek text, because, face it, with F.F. F. Bruce, even though he's writing on the English text, it's basically a commentary on the Greek text. But it's a somewhat fuller uh, fuller treatment. Um, but, yeah, I would say, you know, there's probably a need for uh, studies such as you're asking after. But that book of, of Dennis Johnson, I think, is very helpful. Oh. Yeah, thank you very much. I found him to be very biblical, theological in his approach, and it it is helpful. Yeah, theological commentary might be an interesting thing, such as Ritter Boss's on John, one on Acts would be quite quite fascinating, hmm. I think. Hmm. There is uh, Daryl Bach, although Daryl Bach is a progressive dispensationalist. He has published a commentary on Acts, uh, okay. connected also with his two-volume Luke, hmm. Luke commentary. And I'm trying to remember who's doing the Acts commentary. Oh, for the Reformed Expositor set? Well, that or? one, but also the New International Greek Testament commentary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That has not been done. I know the Pillars one by Peterson came out recently. Yeah. That's right. That's a, that's a, a, a fine commentary. Huh. Well, there's several out there. So, uh, you know, hopefully with the list we've provided, somebody who needs to preach through and just wants to study it uh, can certainly be able to get enough material there. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Uh, You can visit Nick online at feedingonchrist.com, and you can visit everything else that we're doing at reformedforum.org. There you can find information about our other programs as well as how to subscribe to them and get them downloaded to your computer or listen to them online. And, uh, of course, visit wtsbooks.com, and there you can pick up all the books that we've mentioned at a great price. And I believe they're doing a dollar shipping now. If you order $35 worth of books, you can get them shipped to your house in just a few days for a dollar. So you can't really beat that. We want to thank everybody for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.